Welcome to episode 134 of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Beth Bilo, and I am very grateful that you have decided to join me today. You have given me the gift of your time by listening, and I plan to make it worth the investment. Just before I sat down to think about what I was going to share with you in this episode, I received an email from a friend about a business closing. The business is owned by a couple I've had on this podcast, Betsy and Warren Talbot. They founded Married with Luggage about seven years ago and then transitioned that business to one called An Uncluttered Life. They are completely transparent about their reason for closing. As they share in their email, quote, We could BS you and say that we're just ready for something new or moving on to greener pastures or some other face-saving story, but that's not our style. And this has been a great case study in living a plan A life, because getting here doesn't mean it will be perfect. The gossip boils down to this. We failed in our latest experiment. In creating an uncluttered life and the Life Lab community, we failed to attract enough paying customers to make it sustainable. And after more months of dipping into our savings than not, spending far more hours in front of the computer than fits our ideal life scenario, we've made the tough decision to close an uncluttered life and Life Lab. While they say we failed in our latest experiment, I also know Betsy and Warren well enough to know that they succeeded in many, many other aspects of their experiment in creating the life that they have dreamed of. They have never pretended it was all roses and cupcakes, but to be authentic at this point and say this didn't work is still courageous, it's vulnerable, and it's humbling. I'm sure it's humbling for them. It's humbling for me to read about it. I'll share after the interview a few more thoughts on that particular point, as well as what they're offering their audience in their last chance sale. You can find links to the previous conversations I've had with Betsy and Warren in the podcast show notes for this episode. One of the reasons I share their news is because I see their example of telling it like it is as an example of true entrepreneurial leadership. Our success stories are the ones that get shared time and time again. Everybody loves to hear about the winning part of being a business owner, and those are great. But often, they're not quite as powerful as sharing the failure stories. When someone is generous enough to share their failure story, they're leading the way for all of us to take risks, acknowledge the challenges that we have, admit defeat when necessary, dust ourselves off and move on. I also bring up that type of entrepreneurial leadership because it fits in with the conversation I have with today's guest, Steve Farber. Best-selling author Steve Farber is the president of Extreme Leadership Incorporated and the founder of the Extreme Leadership Institute, organizations devoted to the cultivation and development of extreme leaders in the business community, nonprofits, and education. His third book, Greater Than Yourself, The Ultimate Lesson in Leadership, was a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller. His second book, The Radical Edge, Stoke Your Business, Amp Your Life, and Change the World, was hailed as a playbook for harnessing the power of the human spirit. And his first book, 
The Radical Leap, A Personal Lesson in Extreme Leadership, is already considered a classic in the leadership field. It received Fast Company Magazine Reader's Choice Award and was recently named one of the 100 best business books of all time. The 10th anniversary edition of Leap is in bookstores now. You'll find all of the different ways that you can connect with Steve, as well as links to his Introvert Island book selections in the episode show notes at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Well, thank you, Beth. The pleasure is mine. Well, what is making you smile today? Um, wow. I just put up a blog post about an event that I'm involved in uh, every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, to raise money for uh, breast cancer screenings yeah, through an organization called Barbells for Boobs. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what will they think of next? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great organization. They provide screenings for people that can't otherwise get them. Yeah. Uh, for young women and also for men whose insurance won't cover it. Um, and they align themselves with CrossFit gyms around, uh, around the U.S. and Australia. And our little CrossFit gym that I belong to here called CrossFit Sun, uh, we raised more money than any other gym on the planet last year. Wow. So wow. I was just putting up a blog post to uh, to raise money for this year, and I'm I'm just um, I'm smiling ear to ear. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Congratulations on your participation in that and uh, wishing you mucho success with that. Thank you. Well, you know, to give listeners some context as we jump into our conversation, I always like to ask about um, where you feel like you fall on the introvert extrovert spectrum and how is the awareness of where you are on that spectrum influenced you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, you know, as is, uh, I think, fairly common for people in my industry, you know, speakers, writers, communicators, um, I'm actually more of an introvert uh, mm-hmm. than people would expect. Yeah. But I would say I'm, uh, you know, I'm a situational introvert. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so here's, here's what that looks like. If, for example, uh, if I'm going to speak in an event and the client is having some kind of a reception, say the night before. <laughs> yeah. Okay? If it's if it's before I've spoken to the group, that's like torture for me. Walking into a room where I don't know anybody mm-hmm. is I, I just it's like one of my least favorite things to do. On the other hand, if the reception is after I speak, then I'm all about it yeah. and I love it. Yeah. Because then I've met everybody, you know, in in a certain way, or at least they all know who I am. The ice is broken. I could just walk into the room and and start, you know, uh, meeting people. So I'm I'm very much an introvert when I don't know anybody, and I'm very much an extrovert when I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of folks. That uh, again, using that phrase, situational introversion or circumstantial introversion. Yeah. Um, and and I've often thought and, and experienced myself that I think you know introverts can be very powerful and effective public speakers. And it's not so much the being on the stage that's the challenging part; um, it's the before and after. And and you're kind of reinforcing that. And I agree, it's that after that can be more comfortable because you've already kind of established yourself in the room and with people and they come to you as opposed to you having to go to them. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not just for me anyway, it's not just it can be more comfortable. It's night and day. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, after I speak, 
I look forward to that kind of a situation, mm-hmm. whereas before I speak, I dread it. Yes. And my wife, on the other hand, you know, I love taking her to, to places like that where I don't know anybody because it's just like wind her up and watch her go. <laughs> yeah. Total extroverts. Hey, honey, go make us some new friends. Exactly. <laughs> she will. She'll go out there and bring back some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. How have, how have you navigated it when it comes to actually promoting yeah, um, you know, as far as the writing goes, you know, I get I get very, and I don't know if this has to do with introversion per se, but I get very very focused when I'm writing to the point where I I can't any distractions are it's it's like hammering a nail into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so that introverted, introspective, not wanting to talk to anybody be distracted by anybody's, you know, words comes in handy when, yeah. you know, when I'm focused on cranking out some content or writing a book or a blog post or an ink column or whatever it is. Sure. So, so that is, that's really helpful. And the promotion part, you know, it's, it's a really interesting dilemma for me because I'm pretty good at marketing. I don't like it. Particularly. <laughs> right. And I'm, yeah. I'm fairly good at selling but I don't like it particularly. And the reason is that in my business, I mean, I have a platform called Extreme Leadership and, and a framework that, that stands on its own outside of me personally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? right? But nonetheless, as far as my speaking business goes, I am the product. Mm-hmm. So if I'm selling the product, I'm having to toot my own horn, sell myself, talk about how awesome I am, right. and I just don't like it. I don't yeah. like doing it. It, it feels uh, disingenuous somehow. Mm-hmm. So, again, I don't know if that's if that's an introvert sort of a challenge, but it's definitely one that I face. Yeah, I, I would venture to say yes. It, it is something that I would say whether or not it's intrinsically connected with being an introvert, it is, um, you know, to where you could say that they are intimately connected. I think that a lot of introverts do find that particular piece challenging for exactly the reason you said. It's like there are times when you are your own product and you have to toot your own horn and there's nothing really to put out in front of us except for ourselves, you know, Um, and that's when putting the message first, you know, the benefit, the takeaways that people are going to have first is often very helpful. Yeah. And what I found is that, you know, my work has been around long enough now. um, You know, the, the extreme leadership framework that I call the radical leap has been used in a lot of organizations to create culture change and, and individual transformation. And so I'm really getting to the point where I've been able to give myself permission to be bold about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it is my body of work, per se, mm-hmm. I guess. But th- that's not the point. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who created it. I, mm-hmm. I know it works. So it it makes it much more comfortable for me to speak up about it because I'm not, you know, at least overtly in any way um, (laughs) sounding my own trumpet. Right, right. Yep, that makes makes sense to me. So <laughs> thank you for sharing your experiences with that, because I'm, I'm thinking that's going to resonate with a lot of people. And, and to recognize the other thing that you said that I want to underscore is that we don't have to like something to become good at it or to be good at it. I think sometimes we think, oh, I, I have to love networking to do it, or I have to love self-promotion to do it. And to be authentic about it, there does need to be some sort of internal acceptance. <laughs> but but we don't, you know, in order to do something well, it's not like we have to be in love with it and get all excited about it and, you know, feel like we're going to leap out of bed and be ready to do it at a moment's notice. Absolutely. And oftentimes, um, it's it's because we don't love it that we have to do it. Right. 
Um, you know, it's uh, because we tend to avoid those things and some of those things are really important. You know, I've, I'm a big advocate of, of doing what you love. I call it, you know, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. Mm. So doing what you love is really important, but I'll also be the first to suggest in, in support of what you just said that um, there are things that we don't love doing that we have to do in order to do the work that we love. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's a technical term for that. It's called being an adult. Yes, adulting is the phrase yes. I've heard recently. <laughs> yeah, I love I love turning that into a, a verb. Into a verb. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. Yeah, great. Well, I, I'd like to hear a little bit of the story about how you came to this extreme leadership framework. What was the catalyst that led you from the shift from leading a financial services company that I believe you founded um, to becoming a leadership consultant and coach and author? Yeah, there were actually a number of catalysts, but I, you know, I started out uh, in business at, you know, I was, I was young, it was before I was 30 years old, and actually started out as a musician, and that didn't work out so well. Oh, what kind of musician? Not, not for lack of ask. talent. No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> what kind uh, of musician? I'm, I'm a guitar player. I, you know, back in the day, I was, uh, you know, more of a kind of a folky kind of a guy, and I mm-hmm. still do a lot of that, but I play a lot of blues and. And I also started a family really young and, you know, being a musician and having a family Mm. turned out mutually exclusive ideas. (laughs) So I went into business and I just ended up in the in the commodities futures business because I had a friend who had one who had his own little company and he showed me the ropes. And Mm -hmm. I ended up with my own firm after a while. You know, I call it a financial services firm, which is just a polite way of saying I was in the commodities futures business, mm-hmm. which is just a polite way of saying a really speculative, nasty, horrible business. Got it. In my humble opinion. Yeah. So the catalyst for me, um, like I said, there were a number of them. But the main thing was I was in this odd, unenviable, or is it unenviable? I don't know, a <laughs> position of, of having my own company and mm-hmm. hating it. Yeah. Uh, I just I didn't like anything about the industry. So I, listen, I learned about business. I I loved the team that I assembled. I, I loved, you know, the relationships that I had. But the nature of that business is that people lose money. And I just had a moral dilemma with it. Sure. So I, I got out. And I was left in this situation where I had this business background now. And I had a talent for working with people. Mm-hmm. And I had a talent for being on stage that I knew from being a musician and doing some acting when I was in college. And and I just kind of put all that together and started doing consulting work in the corporate world. And this was back in like 1988. It was mm-hmm. a long time ago. Yeah. And I, that's where I found my path. I just kind of in, in, in some ways fell into it, but I was driven away from what I was doing. Sure. Even before I was driven towards doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. And over the years, that developed into a focus on leadership. And I spent six and a half years as vice president of Tom Peters' company. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the original management, you know, modern day management gurus. And just really learned a lot along the way and, and, and developed more and more of a passion for it. Yeah. I noticed that you, you do name um, folks like Tom Peters and whatnot as, as mentors. If someone is listening and, and feeling like they want to get into that kind of mentoring situation, what advice from your own experience would you pass along to someone who, who feels like, especially if they want to get into you know coaching, consulting and, and whatnot, and feel like they need that senior figure, I guess, <laughs> at least in terms of experience? So are you saying somebody who wants to find a mentor or somebody who yeah. wants to be a mentor? Somebody who wants to find a mentor. Yeah. Actually, I think those are, those are related in some way. Mm-hmm. I think 
honestly, one of the best ways to find a mentor is to be one mm-hmm. first. Develop that that heart for raising other people up. It's a it's a dynamic that I call greater than yourself. And it's this wholehearted investment in another person because you believe in them so much and you just want to help them become more successful at whatever this is than you are even. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good place to start is by looking for people that you can mentor in terms of, and I, I, I tend to think that it makes it more likely for us to attract people to mentor us because we're we understand what it takes by doing it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it helps be a little bit more helps us be a little bit more clear as to what we're what we're looking for. But I don't know that there's any that there's any way to you know formulaically go out and find mentors other than being really clear on who the people are in your life that you know or know by reputation or know through their content that have really had an impact on you and and just start by reaching out. I would never <laughs> recommend reaching out by saying, hey, will you, will you be will you be my mentor? Right. <laughs> Unless the relationship has gotten you to that point. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's a pretty good chance that a lot of people ask that, and it's really not a fair thing to ask. Right. Because if you want a mentor, a true mentor, this is a person that has to be really personally invested in your success and helping you achieve what you want. Mm-hmm. You don't want the kind of mentor that you just, you know, sit down and every so often have lunch with you and pat you on the head and say, nice job. I mean, that's not a bad thing, but that's not what I would consider to be a real mentor. So start by reaching out and just express your appreciation for the impact that they've had on you and see where that relationship takes you. I I will tell you, Beth, you know, I have so many people in my circle of friends now that some, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe mentoring others, I'm coaching others, I'm just, I've become friendly with because once upon a time they sent me an email Mm -hmm. that said, hey, I read The Radical Leap or Radical Edge, you're greater than yourself or you heard you speak or whatever. And it really moved me and made a difference for me. And whenever I get an email like that, I, I like to, um, I'm not going to say whenever or all the time, but I, I call. I pick up the phone and I call. Oh, nice. To say thank you. Yeah. And I've made some amazing friends that way. Yeah. But when somebody reaches out to me and says, will you be my mentor? It creates a whole different dynamic. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that's a very serious thing. And I'm not going to make a commitment like that unless I know I can really follow through. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I love the reminder that if something resonates with you, it's okay and it's even desirable to reach out to that person. And it may or may not develop into something that's a relationship or mentoring or coaching or anything like that. But at the same time, um, you know, I've heard people say, oh, I listened to the podcast for years, but it never occurred to me to reach out to you. And so now I yeah. am. <laughs> and I'm like so relieved. I'm like, oh, you know, you can always reach out. And, you know, as authors, we love to hear from people. Well, sure, but you if know. you're, you know, you're, if you're, if your audience is is primarily introverts, introverts. it's not surprising. <laughs> exactly, I know, I know. It's like I have to keep that in mind. You know, yeah. we're yeah. not always going to be that, and and so I, I appreciate the invitation that you're offering there in terms of like saying, you know, it it, it is meaningful. You know, it's a reminder. Yeah. It is meaningful it is. to the person. It is, but I would say I would say that you know the the nuance in this is if you feel compelled to reach out to somebody, mm-hmm. do it with gratitude. It's yeah. it's to express gratitude. It's to it's to share your experience. Yeah. It's not with the what can I get from this. Exactly. It's the what can I what can I offer you? You know, you've given me so much through your podcast, through your writing, whatever. I'm just calling to express my thanks to you. And if it's you know, and there's a chance that that person will respond and the relationship will begin, and who knows where that'll go? Exactly. Just being open to it. 
Well, I, I have a feeling that d different themes of what we've touched on are going to contribute to the next question I have, which is, you use that phrase, extreme leadership. How do you define extreme leadership? A number of different ways. So the, the extreme leader, first of all, extreme leadership is my way of trying to acknowledge the reality that, that leadership is by its nature extreme. So extreme leadership is really kind of a redundant phrase. Mm. In other words, leadership is not about your position or your title or what it says on your business card or where you sit on the org chart or, or if you just call yourself a leader. It's got nothing to do with any of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to do with who you are, what you do, how you approach your life, how you live your life, and your ability to influence people around you to change things for the better. So the extreme leader is a person who, regardless of position or title, steps up, often at the risk of personal sacrifice, mm -hmm. to change things for the better. That's an extreme act. It's about the act of transformation in some way. So what I found is that the extreme leader is a person who cultivates love, generates energy, inspires audacity, and provides proof. That's the LEAP framework that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. That's the extreme leadership framework. So. The foundation of this whole thing is is love. And love is a very significant, and I would even argue the most significant business principle there is. Mm -hmm. And it's at the very foundation of what leadership is. And and this this reality that we've created for ourselves as a society over the centuries, that love has got nothing to do with business, is madness. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, we are, you know, business is a human enterprise. Leadership is of the most human of actions, of activities. Mm -hmm. And we are driven in, in large measure by the heart. And to deny that is to deny a huge part of who we are and a big part of our power. So extreme leadership really fundamentally at its core, at its heart, no pun intended, mm -hmm. <laughs> is is uh, cultivating love. Yeah. So it seems it's a applicable and, and you, as you point out, it's not about your title or what's in your job description that even, you know, I as a solopreneur, I don't have employees, I don't have a team per se, but I can still practice extreme leadership. Of course. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with any of those this kind of mythology that we've created around what you know the leaders are people that sit in positions of authority and mm -hmm. and kind of rule their their you know their turf you have a community mm -hmm. every solopreneur has a community otherwise you would just be solo there'd be no preneur right right <laughs> that makes any sense it does in other words you have customers you have clients you have a marketplace that you're appealing to yeah. these are the people that as a solopreneur you're, you're trying to influence you're trying to help them improve in their lives through whatever product or service you have to offer so to say this doesn't apply to me because i'm just it's just me it's just me and my computer or me and my iphone well, yes, it is if you look at it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But if you're not reaching people that ultimately make your cash register ring, then you're not in business. So the only people that don't really have an opportunity to lead, I would say, are people that you know, basically a hermit, mm -hmm. you know, right. <laughs> that has no contact with any other human beings and cares not to and uh, and uh, maybe living off of a trust fund or a social security check, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. For the rest of us, we have a huge opportunity to step up and change things for the better. And if there was ever a time 
for all of us to be focusing on changing the world for the better, I, I would, you know, say it's a pretty good argument that it's today. It's now. Yeah. <laughs> it's yesterday. Of course, it's now. Of course, that's, it's always, that's always been true. It just exactly. always feels more, it always feels more urgent I in the know. time in which we live. Doesn't it? We always feel like this is the most traumatic time ever, but everybody yeah. feels that in the time that they're in. Right. So, yeah, it is yeah. for us. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't know any different. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to um, dig a little bit into that love and fear piece, because one of the things that I read that you shared is you refer to learning to love the fear and exhilaration that is part of this kind of, you know, all in extreme leadership. Yes. And it's interesting to me that you, you talk about it as something we learn to love. And maybe this goes back to what we were talking about before with, you know, developing skills and you might not like it, but it's something that you have to kind of power through or embrace anyway, because it's in service to yeah. what you yeah. what you do love. Um, you know, and I've always thought like, I, you know, can I learn to love something that doesn't come naturally? can we learn to like or even love something that doesn't come naturally and often that we perceive it as something that's either you have it or you don't yeah that's uh boy that's a it's a deep question and it's again it really depends on on the scenario so mm -hmm. i would say that overall the answer is yes you can learn to love something that you wouldn't otherwise. But, you know, there's some times where that's not a worthwhile endeavor. Again, it's not about having to love everything that you do. I think we can all learn to love more broadly and more deeply and in different contexts. So for most of us, I mean, I know this is not true for, you know, absolutely everybody. But for most of us human beings, we don't have to learn how to love. I mean, there are we naturally love certain people, relationships, things in our life. What we have to learn is to take that and, and put it into a context in which we haven't experienced it before, like work, for example, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This expectation that we should love our work is a shocking thing for some people. Yes. Uh, so finding a way to bring that in, is there something about my work that I can really kind of stoke the, the fire on? You know, what, what is it about my work that I really love? If I'm a solopreneur, um, if I don't listen, I'll just be blunt. If I don't love my customers, mm. I'm never going to make it. Yeah. So yes. I've got to find a way to do that. That doesn't mean loving everything about them and loving every single one of your customers individually. Mm -hmm. We've all had to fire customers from time to time. Um, even if we love them. Right. Uh, but, but it's, it's applying it, that to a relationship that traditionally we don't think of that way. Mm -hmm. So I think we can learn to do that. I think we can also learn to love fear in the right context. And that's the, the quote that you were referring to. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, all of this stuff is, is if we're really doing it and really committing to it, it's scary. Mm -hmm. It's because it's requiring us to do things we haven't done before. And that's scary for most of us. It's requiring mm -hmm. us to take on challenges that are beyond maybe even what we think we're capable of achieving. That's scary. You know, the old, you know, get out of your comfort zone doesn't even quite touch it. Mm -hmm. And that the pursuit of that of that fear is is what I call the pursuit of the OSM, which is spelled capital O, capital S, exclamation point, capital M. Mm -hmm. That stands for the oh shit moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, that's what we experience whenever we, whenever we act on that love that we have to the point where we're really trying to do something different. The OSM is a natural thing. It presents itself. Yeah. And what I'm suggesting is that if we recognize that, that it's a natural thing, then we can actually learn to love the experience of pursuing the OSM. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it any less scary, it just kind of reframes it. So now we can see, oh, this is, this is actually a sign that I'm doing something. 
Yeah. The OSM is is proof that I'm actually acting and not just thinking about it or wanting it or aspiring to it, but I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. The OSM will be there and then I can look at it and say, oh, I'm scared. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Because our natural inclination is to interpret it as a bad thing and therefore to quote Monty Python, <laughs> run away, run away. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, so it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think, you know, the OSM is a sign that we should, in many contexts, a sign that we should proceed, not retreat. Yeah. 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 It's a sign that like you're, you're on the edge of something um, and that to push through it is going to take you into that new place. And, and what I've read is, you know, with the fear, what is actually happening is we're afraid that we can't handle what happens on the other side of the situation. And to be able to kind of push through and to trust yourself. And it seems like one way I could learn to love it is to say, I can handle whatever happens. And I'm curious yeah. about what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, the fear is there because we don't know what the outcome is. Right. Because right. we don't have a guarantee. If we had a guarantee, there'd be no fear. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they just go hand in hand. And you're right. It's, it's that getting comfortable with the discomfort, mm -hmm. with the ambiguity, with the, the risk that's involved in doing this stuff. And by this stuff, I mean stepping up to change things for the better it's we just need to have you know, the intellectual understanding of what's going on i think is really helpful yeah it's really what it comes down to it it makes the experience um it doesn't necessarily make it feel different but it makes it feel more positive mm-hmm mm -hmm. it's that reframing that you talked about so well i want to uh, wrap up our, our conversation um, the formal part of this conversation with a question about your your work in companies because some of the listeners are solopreneurs here others work in traditional companies and and some who are solopreneurs have ambitions to um, have employees and to grow so what are some of the best practices that you've witnessed in companies that have successfully engaged and promoted all types of employees and i'm thinking especially those who are on the more introverted end of the spectrum you know I write a weekly column for Inc.com mm -hmm. and these columns are based on interviews that I have with uh, with various you know leaders and entrepreneurs and that's really kind of what I'm trying to find out from all these folks is you know, their best practices and creating the kind of the right kind of culture and it's uh, interesting how, how many of them resonate or congruent with love energy audacity and proof mm -hmm. so the first thing is to strive to create a culture, and by the way, a culture exists when you have even just one person, I suppose, yes. but certainly you have two or more. Strive to create a culture that people love working in. And that, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that, but, but really what we're after is a culture of kindness, mm -hmm. treating each other well, combined with very high expectations. And the deeper the love is among the team and the deeper the love for the business is, the, the higher the expectations can be the higher the standards are. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is such a thing as tough love. If people you know, don't want to do the work or, or live up to those standards, then they're probably in the wrong place and you need to let them go. But if I can create an environment that people look forward to coming to work every day mm -hmm. uh, and really look forward to bringing their, their full passion and creativity to bear on what we're trying to do together, that's the magic bullet. You know, that's the summary of all of it. In terms of how you do that specifically, uh, there are there are any number of ways. I mean, we have um, a couple of case studies now of small companies, and I'm talking about anywhere from 50 to 100 employees that have taken the LEAP framework, love, energy, audacity, and proof, and woven it into everything that they do. Mm 
-hmm. from the way they hire to their performance evaluations to their expectations, to their rewards, to the way they compensate people. It's in every part of their fabric. And one company just hit the the list of the 100 best companies to work for in the state of Washington. Another company just came out of bankruptcy, going through three CEOs in three years, oh. then adopted this process and now have had two of the most profitable years in their company's history. Mm. Um, a, a small healthcare concern that has gone from one star rating to five star rating, reduced their turnover by 25%. Because in essence, what all of them are doing is creating an environment that people love working in, where they're mm-hmm. kind to each other and they have high expectations and they perform amazing things for their clients. So there's lots of ways to get there, but you know, if you hold that intent in place from the very inception of your company, you're much more likely to build a company that's going to be tremendously successful in a sustainable way year after year. And you're reminding us, what comes to, to mind as you're sharing that is that sometimes when people talk about creating that kind of culture that is inclusive and engaging for all types of employees, you know, perhaps sometimes we're focusing on the wrong things, like we're putting band-aids on it, especially when it comes to the introvert piece, because we'll say, well, we need to have communication strategies that accommodate different styles. Or if we're having an open work plan, then we need to make sure we've got side rooms where people can retreat to. And those are all really important. But, but what I'm hearing from you is that sometimes they might be missing the point that there's something much more fundamental and basic. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I think I think it is much more fundamental. And then once you have that fundamental intent established, you want to create mm-hmm. a, an environment that people love working in, then in order to do that, you have to know who's in that environment. Right. And and how to accommodate for different, you know, learning styles, etc. This company up in Seattle that I mentioned, mm-hmm. it's a company called OAC Services. They're a uh, uh, a consulting company, <laughs> they're architectural engineering consulting company. This is a whole population of engineers. I think got a few introverts. I'm sure there's more than one. <laughs> more than one. More than yeah. one. And they did a really interesting thing where they took the uh, that everybody do a disc assessment mm-hmm. and then lined it up with the elements of love, energy, audacity, and proof, and began to look at well, as an for example, as an introvert, how do I show those things? Yeah. As an extrovert, how do I show those things? As a driver, how do I show, you know, all those, uh, the various combinations, they express in different ways. So yes, you're right. It has to be very much engineered to the individuals in the organization. But the fundamental goal that we're after mm-hmm. is is that environment where people treat each other extraordinarily well and do amazing things for their clients. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to wrap up on. So thank you so much. Um, So much wonderful information, I think, for both people in those traditional environments, as well as us solopreneurs who want to be leaders and who are leaders. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Beth. It's been a lot of fun. Before I let you go, I have a final question that I ask all of my guests, and this is to get to know you a little bit more. You've been granted a three-week vacation on Introvert Island, and you can only thank take... Thank you. Yes, I know. We could, we could all use that, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and you could only take three books with you. What would you mm. take with you and why? Well, I have a really geeky answer to that question. <laughs> We love answers. Um, uh, actually, there's there's two answers. One is it, it depends on whether you consider this to be one book or three books or five books. But the Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And the reason is I haven't been able to get past the first hundred pages. <laughs> so you need the three weeks of uh, solitude. Exactly. And... So if I'm stuck on an island and there's nothing else to do, I will read <laughs> the damn thing already. Exactly. Uh, so if that doesn't count, then the three books are 
it would be the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and the Return of the King. Mm -hmm. yep. Because I've read them, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, over the course of my lifetime, from the time I was like 10 years old, I've read that trilogy probably 10 times. Yeah. So that's my true geeky response, is that I, because I can get totally absorbed in that world. Yes. And uh, it'd be fun just to kind of uh, sit and stew in it yeah. for a while on an introvert island. Excellent. It's so vividly imagined that, yeah, perfect escape. <laughs> So, well, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your books and what you have to offer through Extreme Leadership? Yeah, stevefarber.com is the place to go. I've got, you know, my blog lives there. I've got a free audio series. If you go to stevefarber.com, you'll see it. Uh, sign up for it because I get, and I'm, I'm not just saying that because of the reasons we talked about before, <laughs> right. but because I get really great feedback from a lot of people on that. Great. So it's, it's free, stevefarber.com. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Steve Farber. On Facebook, I'm Steve Farber. On LinkedIn, I'm Steve, Steve Farber. Farber. <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Steve Farber. There's a bit of a pattern here. There is a bit of a pattern. You so have, I'm easy to find. You, you have, remember my name, I'm really easy to find. Exactly. Great branding consistency. <laughs> so excellent. And I will make sure that all of those links are included in the show notes as well as um, links to your books. So thank you so much for the generosity of your time and sharing and insights. And uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. The pleasure was mine. Thanks. After that conversation with Steve, I have a hankering to go back and reread The Radical Leap, which I read many years ago. I remember it as an easy, enjoyable read with a meaningful message. That's actually my favorite kind of book. <laughs> and now that I'm an entrepreneur rather than an employee, I'm sure I'll read it through a different lens. It'll be interesting to see what's shifted in my perspective and what I take away from the book. If you have a book like that, that it's been years since you read it, it might be worth going back if you remember it having any level of impact on you. Because each time we come back to information, we're coming back to it a different person. So it's always worth revisiting that. Um, also, just to see how much you've grown since you last read it. So I invite you to you know, browse your bookshelves and see what might uh, grab your attention that you could settle in with, especially as we get towards these uh, cooler and darker days. Before I return to some thoughts on what I shared in the beginning about Betsy and Warren, I do have a little bit of book news to share. November 3rd is the first birthday of my latest book, The Introvert Entrepreneur, Amplify Your Strengths and Create Success on Your Own Terms. And that date is fast approaching. I'll be posting Goodreads and Facebook giveaways this week, and links to those opportunities will be in the episode show notes. If you've already read the book, I'd be really grateful if you could take a few minutes to leave an honest review, especially in honor of this one-year birthday or anniversary. Share why you picked up the book, what resonated most with you, and who else might find value in it. And of course, if you don't own your copy yet, you can purchase it as a softcover, ebook, or audiobook through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, your independent bookseller, or wherever fine books are sold. In other book news, enrollment is also open for my final two virtual book groups for 2016. We're meeting for six Wednesdays from November 9th through December 14th. It's a fabulous opportunity to be part of a supportive, like-minded, small group of five or six other introvert entrepreneurs gathering together to read through the book. I facilitate the discussion of each chapter, and we talk about how the information applies to your business and how you can strengthen your business by living fully into being an introvert entrepreneur. 
And best of all, besides the benefit of the discussion and diving deeper into the information, you're provided with tools to help you take action to move some aspect of your work forward. Registration is open through November 4th, and you can get all the details at theintrovertentrepreneur.com slash bookgroup. I'll close with a final for now thought on Betsy and Warren's news about closing their business. And I say final for now because there's so much to unpack when we hear about something like this and so much reflection that we can do for ourselves. What I appreciate is that they are exemplifying a concept that I've spoken a lot about over the years about attachment. The saying that I come back to over and over again is, I am open to outcome, not attached. Now, I have no idea if Betsy and Warren entered into their experiment of an uncluttered life without attachment to outcome. They might have been very attached. They might have been completely open. Or how they felt about it might have changed depending on which day you asked them. And I'm guessing that that is probably the closest to the truth. From what I know of them, they were committed and all in, but also curious about what would happen. In other words, I'm guessing that they were open, but not attached. When we approach our life that way, there's less failure and there's more adventure and more learning, more possibility. And as I learned from a colleague that I used to do trainings with, when something doesn't go the way we expect or want it to, just say plot twist and move on. We know that it's not that simple, but sometimes it really is that simple. Betsy and Warren invite you to join them for their final podcast on Sunday, October 30th, as they discuss the concept of knowing when to quit. It is such an important topic and not the easiest to talk about, but it reminds me of a conversation that I had in episode 129 with Justin Crawford about how defining failure is as important as defining success. So I'll include a link to that in the episode show notes as well and link you to Betsy and Warren's final podcast episode. If you enjoyed this episode of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast, I invite you to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, and to take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever platform you access it from. Reviews help others to discover the podcast, and they can know from what you share if it's a good use of their time. So thank you so much for your consideration of my request. A special thank you also to my podcast producer, Paul Messing, and to my assistant, Naja, for the episode show notes. And a huge thank you to you for spending this time with me. Next week, I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Santa Croce from the League of Extraordinary Introverts to the podcast. I hope you'll make plans to join us. This is Beth Bilo of The Introvert Entrepreneur. And until we meet again, remember that success is an inside job. <laughs>